Hi, I'm Lindsay Pugh. And I'm Joe Nesterook. Welcome to the Woman in Revolt podcast. Today, we're talking about Andre Zuwowski's 1981 horror-slash-breakup movie, Possession. And well, is this one of those movies that will Ooh. just <laughs> grip you and shake you until you are limp? I'm telling you, my head is still spinning because every time I think about it, I think of it in a new way and come up with new meanings for myself, and it's blowing my mind. Same. Every time I've seen this movie, I've thought of it in a different way, and I also feel like every time I see it, I then end up doing a deep dive, and I find some brilliant analysis on the internet that provides me with a whole new reading. It's just one of those movies that there are so many different interpretations, and how you feel about it can change so radically depending on what's going on in your life, what movies you've seen recently, maybe just even the context in which you watch it. It's just, it's amorphous in that way. It is. And for a movie that's, what, 40 years old, over 40 years old, that is quite the legacy. So, wow. I just, I don't know what to say other than everybody hold on because this could go all over the place. <laughs> but we're going to try to, we're going to try to stay in our lane. <laughs> yeah. And I just want to preface this by saying we, obviously we went down some rabbit holes into the production of the film and the people involved and the history and the context. And we're not going to do that so much on this podcast because it would be like a six hour long podcast. <laughs> so we're going to give you some of it, but we're not going to give you all of it in depth. But if you want that type of thing, we're going to give you some resources so that you can seek that out and find it easily. We'll put them in the show notes, but just want to mention a couple of things up front. And one is the Devil's Advocates book series. There is a volume on possession by Alison Taylor, who is a professor at Bond University in Australia. Can't recommend that enough. That is a really good book. It gives a pretty comprehensive overview. Then there are also a couple of podcasts that Allison recommends in the book. One of them I can vouch for. Let me just find it. Okay, so the one I can vouch for is the Daughters of Darkness podcast, four-part retrospective on Zawowski. So it's not just possession, it's Zawowski as a filmmaker, and it goes into some of his recurrent themes and other things like that. And then she also recommends one called The Projection Booth. That's the podcast name. They have a three-hour consideration of possession. I have not listened to that one, cannot vouch for it, but it sounds good. I definitely will check it out. Absolutely. I am now going to be searching for all of these wonderful podcasts. I would love to hear someone else's thoughts, analysis, to try to get some perspective on this because it does kind of haunt me. I can't really put my finger on exactly everything the movie may be trying to tell me. It just seems like my analysis keeps changing on it. So I I think this will be one of those movies where I'm just forever revisiting it at certain points in my life, and I'm just going to always find something different. So I am looking forward to hearing much more analysis from other people. Same here. And one final one, again, that 
is not out yet. It's coming out soon. But that sounds very interesting is Anne Bergstead's upcoming Faith and Chance, a deep dive into possession. So I think that one is going to be like four or five parts, and it's going to be just on possession, deep dive. That one should be good as well. So we've we've given you a whole bunch of other things where if you listen to this and you're like, ah, they didn't go deep enough, or oh, I wanted more on the production history or whatever, seek out any of these materials. Also check out Kayla Janice's House of Psychotic Women. There are plenty of things, and we're going to put all of those resources in the show notes. So don't hate on us for not covering everything in like <laughs> an hour and maybe 20 minutes. Yes, absolutely. We we do not want to have to give you a dinner break to go get your dinner and come back and listen to this. So Yeah, so I think maybe up front we should clarify something because I don't know if this is true for you, Joe, but when I hear somebody say possession movie, I automatically kind of assume that they're talking about a demonic possession. That's just where my brain goes. Me too. I mean, my religious background, exorcist, automatically, I hear possession. I'm thinking somebody's spewing something, elevating in the bed, all of that. And so this is not so much that. It is kind of that. I think there is a read on this that could be more in line with something like that. But there's also a whole other aspect to it where it's much more about humans wanting to possess each other and what that does to your psyche, at least to me. There are some religious elements in the film. I think we'll probably get into them. And I think someone could potentially do a read on this being, I don't know that I would say demonic possession, but some kind of spiritual possession, let's just say. But that's kind of not where I go. And that's not also the analysis I prefer, if that makes sense. Right, exactly. Watching this film, it was a total different read for me other than someone being possessed by spirit. It was more like a psychological possession brought on by religion, because I do believe religion played a part, especially for the character of Anna. I do believe that that played maybe a bigger role in her I I don't want to say breakdown, but it was kind of a breakdown in the movie because she just seemed to have more references to religion in the film than I thought Mark did. So that's what kind of hit me was this is some type of mental thing that's been brought on by being in religion. And I didn't so much think that. So already you're going to see some differences cropping up and... (laughs) There are going to be some disagreements and different reads, and this movie is, uh, you're going to have so many different interpretations. So many of them are valid. So what you're getting at any given moment is going to be so dependent on the person providing the analysis. I think there are all kinds of arguments that could be made for this and could be totally valid. Right. Everybody's getting a participation trophy when we're done because everything everything is good. Yes. So for me, I think some other films that this film reminds me of are definitely Lars von Trier's Antichrist, which I actually hate, but it does remind me of this movie. <laughs> David Cronenberg's The Brood, which I know Joe just rewatched. 
Also, you know, one movie that we watched together, uh, Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, that, were you reminded of that film? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I could definitely see that. But I mean, we are going to, again, we'll put a whole bunch in the show notes. So if you are like, oh, I love the genre of film where either it's a couple going through a breakdown with interpersonal dynamics that are really interesting and veer horror, or even if it's just other films that have a woman going mad at their center that skew on the horror side. We're going to put those all in the show notes. So if you're trying to like put together a watch list for Halloween or something, those will all be there for you. So definitely check that out. Yeah, there's a lot of wonderful films that we have watched. Some we've even watched together that I could see the same themes and some that I could see would have influenced Zawowski. But this film, with all of that said, and all of the films that I've watched that could be contributed to helping shape possession, possession is on a whole nother level for me. Me too. Really, of all the films that I would compare it to, possession is at Mm -hmm. the pinnacle. It's just one of those films that And again, we were talking about this before we started recording. It's really hard, I think, to try to figure out why one film works so well and why another one that has a lot of the same elements, a lot of the same mystery and intrigue, a lot of great performances doesn't work as well. And for me, definitely, it's Antichrist and Possession. I hate Antichrist. I love Possession. What is it about Possession? So I think hopefully through our discussion, we'll be able to dig at that a little bit and maybe identify a little bit better why this movie just does something for both of us. Exactly. I cannot wait to dive in. With all that said, it's probably almost impossible to give a synopsis, but (laughs) should we try? Yeah, I mean, I wrote this little thing and was like, I don't fucking know. How do you describe this movie? It's just like impossible. But I think we can maybe kind of just give you some overarching shit that would potentially be helpful. But I would say, too, if you haven't seen this, why are you listening to this podcast? You can go <laughs> stop to, right now. <laughs> stop. You can go to effedupmovies.com and they have what I think is the 2013 restoration of this potentially it's it's good quality you can watch it there not that we condone watching things illegally but you can watch it there and then come back and listen to this after because if you haven't seen the film this is going to be an entirely weird disjointed conversation that i don't think you would get anything from but do with that what you will so if i had to summarize this film, I would say, I guess, that Anna, who is played by Isabel Ajunie, and Mark, played by Sam Neill, are a married couple in turmoil. So Mark is some kind of international spy, question mark. It's, it's never really specified, but he is on some kind of mission in East Berlin. This is during the time when the Berlin Wall was still up. This was 19... 19- 80. This was filmed in 1980, came out in 1981. So that's that's the period of time. So he's in East Berlin, comes back to West Berlin, and he meets up with Anna. And you can immediately tell shit is not going well in their relationship. 
So Mark kind of thinks she's probably having an affair, and he eventually does find confirmation of this news, and he goes on a depressive spiral. Anna and Mark have a son together named Bob, who is played by Michael Hogben, and he seems to be the big thing keeping them in contact with each other, although he is also severely neglected by both of them and also at many times just kind of used as a pawn in their interpersonal bullshit. So when Anna is gone because she disappears and says she has to do her own shit, Mark finds someone to replace her. And that person is a woman named Helen, who is Bob's teacher, also played by Ajani. And when he sees her, he is agog at the fact that she looks exactly like his wife. She looks exactly like Anna, but she has lighter hair, lighter eyes, and just a more easygoing attitude. There's also Margie, who is Anna's best friend, who pops in as a surrogate caregiver when Mark needs her. So Margie is played by Margit Karstensen. In order to kind of figure out what's going on with Anna, Mark decides that he needs to hire a detective to look into her whereabouts. What he ends up finding is wilder than he could have predicted. Anna is killing men, and she's feeding parts of them to this sort of Lovecraftian monster that she is also having a sexual relationship with. And she keeps describing the monster as a project that will eventually be ready. And when it is ready, the monster is Mark's double, kind of a version of him that Anna finds most palatable. One interesting thing that Alison Taylor does in her book is describe the film's structure as a spiral staircase, where at each new level, it's sort of the same, but built upon and a higher meaning and a deeper understanding. And that it just keeps building and building and transcending to something that is the same, but is different. So I know that was a little haphazard, but that's the best I can do at summarizing this crazy-ass movie. At the heart of this, I have to believe that this is a film, because we know at the time, or we're going to tell you, that at the time, the director, Zuvosky, was in the middle of a horrible divorce. And this clearly comes through, this anguish between two people loving each other, but just unable to communicate or be together. So that was a main thing for me, just the separation of the two main characters and the desperation, really, of both of them wanting to be together, but knowing it's just impossible. They would actually have to completely change the way each one of them are to be together. So I felt like that that somehow became the monster that Anna was creating and became the teacher that was the doppelganger for Anna. So I saw that theme of just human relationships breaking down and just, even if you don't show the hysteria on the outside, probably the hysteria of your thoughts on the inside, it was almost like all those crazy thoughts you have and that you would never act on or show in public, they came out in these two characters, and it just exploded. Everything that you would want to do, but you don't let yourself do, they did. So that seemed to be an underlying theme for me. And then also, I remember very clearly the Berlin Wall. It was a huge deal when that wall came down. 
And before then, just that stark reality of that horrible wall. And I also know that the director had been basically run out of Poland in a way, put on some type of list where he could not make movies. His country was imploding at the time. He had to leave there. A film he was trying to make got shut down. So I also feel like he was showing just political unrest and what it is for someone that has never maybe known anything other in their life. They've never had a stability. And I think maybe that's where it even came in for little Bob. You know, maybe he was some representation of this, of a child dependent on two people that basically ignored him and his life almost felt like an apocalypse was happening all the time around him. Yeah, totally. And I think it would feel that way for Zawowski, who you said had a tumultuous political climate for his entire life. And then for Bob, who is growing up in occupied Germany, where the Berlin Walls erected, you can't go from east to west Berlin, and you have mm-hmm. armed guards that are there all the time at the wall. And if you ever try to cross, they will arrest you or you could get killed. So I think that the turmoil and the chaos that is going on in his house is very much reflective of what it would be like to be in that world at the time. Like the apartment strewn with all the papers and the mess and the laundry and the refrigerator and just all that shit that is so you can't make sense of it. Like, that would be the world for those people in Berlin at the time, I think. Right. And you just feel that vibe. There's a tension. Even if you just took the dialogue, a lot of the dialogue, and just read it normally, it would be just normal things people would be saying to each other. It's normal stuff. Okay, we're divorcing. Things aren't working anymore. How are we going to handle the child care? I'm going to be going here. But the way that these actors delivered it, it was just, I just felt like I was going on a roller coaster. Like I could just feel the tension building up in my stomach. I was just dreading what was going to happen next, just from the way that everything was delivered. You could just feel this crazy tension and it never let up in the movie. So I think that's another thing. It just gets you at a... <laughs> at a heightened sense of dread. And for the two hours you're watching this film, that's where you are in your headspace. You're just assaulted over and over and over. You don't get a chance to ever have anything that's calm or normal. Yes. Like, you know, in most horror movies, there are some moments of respite. There's a moment where things are pretty normal or people are not being attacked. Everyone is calm and they're just kind of existing in the world of the film, usually there's at least one scene like that. I don't think there's a single scene like that in this entire movie. Everything is weird, deeply, deeply weird. And if it's not the performance that's making it weird, it's the shooting language. Like there's lots of handheld camera. It's moving almost always. Conversations are not shot like with shot reverse shot like they are in American cinema oftentimes. It's like There will be a really long take with a revolving camera. There are wide angle lenses that really stretch out the space between often like Anna and Mark if they're in the same frame. There are some really extreme angles that make spaces that are familiar or ordinary seem really strange and uh, and scary. So it's 
just doing all of these things simultaneously that really take what could sound like a somewhat ordinary story if you took the monster out of it. It's taking those things and it's making them feel and making them look as horrible as they probably do for those people, as Joe said, on the inside. Absolutely. I loved the cinematography. I loved the way they shot this. The conversations, they would just go round and round and round them. And a kitchen shot may be shot from an angle on the ground. There was one scene where Anna, who is, I just have to just stop right here and say, Isabel Angelini is absolutely incredible. What an incredible performance. One of the greatest performances I have ever seen. This woman gave it all in this movie. But there's one scene where she's using an electric knife to cut something and the camera goes down and it's weird and you know there's some bad shit about to happen. And I mean, way before it happened, I was like halfway covering my eyes and going, oh my God, you know, you just, just that. And I noticed that mainly the up-close shots came when there was severe violence. There's a scene where Mark is slapping Anna and it shows his face up close and her face up close as he's hitting her and hitting her. Just so horrific. That's when the close-ups came in. And that that was really interesting in the film The Brood. A lot of those camera angles they used in that film. I, I found that where they would shoot weird angles and when violence happened, they would hone in on the faces of the characters. So I, I that I just wanted to mention that that, that was one correlation I found between those two films. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. I think that also kind of makes me think of Mikhail Hanukkah's Funny Games, where the whole point of it is you don't see the graphic violence, you see everything else. This is just another version of that. Right. I want to say, too, in that scene that you're talking about with the slaps, the editing in that scene is so brilliant, too. And the editors on this film are both women. Their names are Marie-Sophie Deboe, and I'm, I'm butchering that, and Suzanne Lang-Willer. I couldn't, they do have both extensive filmographies, not something that I was immediately familiar with when I glanced at their IMDb's, but I did bookmark them for, ooh, I want to look into them a little bit more. You know, I wonder if they work together frequently. I want to know more about them because the way that scene, it's just really rapid edits of close up and then seeing a piece of a slap and then seeing someone on the floor and the the cuts really create kind of a more unsettling scene than if it were just a static camera. It's it's interesting. Oh yeah, that scene probably horrified me more than any of them, I would say. Anything bloody or when she's fucking the monster, you know, some people would be horrified by that. I was like, whatever, whatever. But that scene, that violent scene and just showing those up-close shots and showing basically, it's almost like her resignation of just taking it, just kind of leaving her body in a way and him just being so angry and just this evil look and the way he's just enjoying hitting her. It was so fucking disturbing. I'm telling you. Woo. And Sam Neill talks about how that scene was so traumatic for him to shoot because 
both Zawowski and Anjani were like, you have to really hit me. It can't be fake. And he was like, no, no, they don't. Like, I can't really hit you. In cinema, they fake it. And they made him do it. And then he said he went into a stairwell and cried <sighs> because it just made him feel fucking awful as it would. I know. I don't. Well, that's why I'm not an actor. I could not slap somebody like that. I mean, maybe there's like two or three politicians I could slap like that. Yeah, that's about it. I'd say more than two or three. Yeah, I was being kind. Yeah, <laughs> I was lying, but yeah, it was absolutely incredible. I just have to say, I think the actors' performances. Every actor, I didn't see a weak link. Every actor put forth everything that they had, and I do believe that for me, this was one of the things that helped elevate this film into something above a lot of other films that I've seen was just the incredible acting by each person in it. I agree. I think even, I mentioned her briefly, and I think I said her name wrong, but Margit Karstensen, mm -hmm. she is someone who is like well-known in German theater, and then she also worked with Fassbender. So she's pretty well-known and talented, and I think that comes through in her part, which is honestly pretty minimal, but you get a lot out of it. Like her first interaction with Mark, where you're like, what is the relationship between these people? Because it's playfully hateful, sexual. It has all these swirling emotions where you can tell she's familiar with him on a different level than just the friend of his wife. There's something going on with them, and she brings that. I don't think that's in the dialogue. That's in her performance fully. And I think Heinz Bennett as Heinrich, too, is so fucking funny. Like, he is, to me, the f I laughed every time he was on screen. Oh, I loved him. He is excellent. He was. that. There was the fight scene between him and Mark. And it was like something out of, I'm going to really age myself here because this is even before me, but I remember seeing it like old Batman cartoons where I expected things to pop up saying kapow and hit. Like yeah. it didn't even look real, you know, when he was doing all these weird, I don't know, kung fu or some type of poses. and But it just worked. It so worked, and he was, for me, he was one of my favorites. I just enjoyed seeing him on the screen every time he came on. Brilliant. Me too. I was so sad when he died just because everything he said was super fucking funny. He's like, Bennett plays him as a super campy character, and I feel like he is the only one in the film who is campy. Like, this is this character is funny. He's just very pretentious and, like, super into... Eastern philosophy and doing drugs, but acting like he's holier than thou. And like he's figured something out that other people have not figured out. He acts like that, but it's in almost like a self aware way, not a self aware way like the character's aware, but the actor's aware. It's just a very layered performance that I know Ajani gets so much praise for this movie and she should, but I also think that he's very funny. And I think we read somewhere, maybe it was in the Devil's Advocate book, Possession, by Allison Taylor, where actually Zawowski wanted funny elements in there. He purposefully put comic relief. 
I think I read where Margie was supposed to be kind of a comic relief with her broken leg. She had a broken leg and, you know, she was just kind of over the top and she was supposed to be something that was funny. And also this character and there was a funny scene where the first detective was supposed to be following Anna and my God, he's like upper ass the whole time. Like all she had to do was turn around and look at him and he was like frantic (laughs) And at one point, remember this weird scene where he gets in front of her apartment and he kicks something and we realize later on it's a head, like a human head that he just kicks in the street as he's walking and he never stops to pick it up or look at it. Like there's just all this weird imagery and stuff that you want to laugh at and you're like, why is it in here? And I think that was on purpose. Yeah. And I mean, another thing that I thought was interesting is that this film originally had roles that were in the I don't know if they were in the shooting script I think they were because I think they were already cast right and then they got removed because Zawofsky realized that they didn't quite work but some elements of the characters remain and so I kind of wondered like maybe there were other parts like that like I almost kind of wondered was the head thing maybe something else and then it got taken out but they left it in just for the absurdity of it yeah it seemed like it could have been something like that because there were some rewrites on this script I think when it was already in the production phase so I would believe anything I would too yes there there's just so much but Instead of making it chaotic and somehow detracting from the film, it all comes together. It all <laughs> it all works. And I'm not sure how, if it was just meticulously planned like that or some good planning and some fuck-ups, but it just all came together for luck. I don't know. But it everything that's kind of crazy or something that seems a little open-ended or it's like who what who what it just seems to work in the film it just goes with it it totally does and Zawofsky mentions that he tries to shoot his films kind of in the style of John Ford who I believe said something like you know he tries to shoot them so that they can't be meddled with by studio executives so that he has such limited film that he can only really make the movie that he wants to create. And Zawofsky said that he also shoots in that style. And so it does lead me to think that if something was there, it was something he wanted to be there, Mm -hmm. even if it was something that changed on the script while it was still in the shooting phase. I don't know. It just, it seems like if it was there, he put it there for a reason and it might be just for absurdity. Mm-hmm. It might be just to fuck with the audience, or it might be something that he felt was communicating something deeper. But I think it's kind of cool how it's it's a mix, and he's not, he doesn't seem like so pretentious of a director that he's not willing to admit, like, I have no idea what the fuck this is. There were a couple times in interviews where he said things like that, like, good luck, I don't know, I couldn't explain it. <laughs> I agree with that. I, I do believe, I know that he was used to shooting in Poland before this film. And what he said was there was never a lot of money. So he had to be very controlling because he could not afford to go back and do take after take after take. So I think he had learned filmmaking through 
I'm going to be all over this, like stink on shit. I'm in control. Do this. Maybe to, and, and as I do firmly believe to his detriment and the detriment of the people that had to work with him. But I also believe that that's why these things probably are not so random because I do believe he had an iron fist other than, and we, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later, when they did the horrific U.S. edit of the film. Yeah. I don't know how much control he had over that, but I'm sure none. But I, I think he knew exactly a lot of what he was putting in the film and whatever got left in there, he wanted it to be in there. Yeah, I think so too. And I, this is the only film of his I've seen, not because I'm not interested in him, just because it's very hard to find his films streaming in the US. I haven't, I have a VPN, but I haven't dug into are they streaming other locations? But it does seem like still a lot of his stuff is just really hard to find. So I I am interested, though, in him just as a director as a whole and how possession fits in with the rest of his filmography, mm-hmm. because he seems to be one of those people who did some questionable things, like his treatment of the cast and the crew wasn't uh, stellar, and particularly with Isabelle Ajunie was actively very damaging, but... I don't know. He's not hateable in the way that some of those auteurs who are super pretentious and controlling are. I don't know if you got that impression from him from reading some interviews. He would in one moment say something that really rankled me. I think if you're familiar at all with this film and what went on with it, you have to have heard that the relationship between him and Isabel Ajunie was not the best. He was very controlling. Supposedly, he threatened her with violence, did things to get a performance out of her. I think he also maybe did that with everyone in the film, but her especially, it seemed like. He claims that she attempted to commit suicide, which we can't really I don't know if that really happened or what happened after she saw the film. So things like that, I'm just like, God, this guy's kind of an asshole or whatever. But when you do see him in the interviews, he's also, he will give her credit. Her performance, which is incredible when she's in the subway and having the the episode there, he totally credits her for that. He did not try to take credit for that. He does say when he makes mistakes or something, I've seen him own up to that or say, yes, I don't know, whatever. So you're right. I mean, there is something likable about him. And as far as his talent, I think he was a very talented director with a vision that was just dealt a shitty hand in life on where he was born at the time what he had to go through and that he was able to really do what he did is pretty amazing. So I I do give him credit for that, but there are things about him that also give me pause. Yes, same. I think he seems like a multi-layered person. And I also was interested in reading about how when he removed those characters from the script that were originally in there, it was 
a character who was supposed to be Anna's ex-husband named Abe, and then Abe's new girlfriend, Sarah. So a lot of the discussion in the Allison Taylor book is about how through removing those characters, he removed a lot of what she felt was more overt misogyny. Like that character was overtly misogynistic in the version of the screenplay where he was still involved. And I thought that that was interesting that he had this more misogynistic character that could have created a very different read on the film and that he ultimately removed him. And it seemed like there was a lot of discussion of why he did that. Was it a conflict with the actor who was cast? Was it something he felt wasn't working in the film? It's unclear. But again, I'm, I'm interested in, in that in particular. I'm wondering if there was some kind of realization at how it came across or if it was just kind of happenstance that it was taken out. I just bring this up to say that there are a lot of discussions of, is this film misogynistic? Is it not? Mm -hmm. And I do think it's interesting that it potentially could have been a lot more skewed in one direction had that original piece of the screenplay stayed intact. Right. And now that you brought it up, what do you think? I mean, was it misogynistic? Was it an applause for feminist? Was it neither one of the two? Is that trying to pigeonhole a great film by putting it into those parameters? I mean, what do you think? What's your opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, my opinion is I understand how people would read this as being an overtly feminist film. And I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I think that's probably more what Kayla Janice would say. I know that she found the character of Anna, I don't want to say inspirational, but very something to something to applaud and something that you don't get to see on film. Just this woman losing her shit and getting to express herself, even if it's not cleanly with words, but having the space to be able to do that. And I do think that that is unusual and that Zawofsky gives the space for that to happen. But for me, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a feminist masterpiece and I wouldn't say it's misogynistic. I would say it's just a look at particular themes through the structure of a marriage told by a man and told from a male point of view. So, of course, what comes with that is some things that are not going to be understood about the female perspective, I think. But I feel like he does a good job of trying to understand it and trying to elevate it and trying to give it the space to exist. And so for me, that's I'm, I'm interested in that. I think that that's, for the time especially, unique. And I think that's kind of why I'm maybe, maybe part of why I'm drawn to this film, trying to understand what who this person was and and if that was a cognizant thing or if that was just something that happened as a result of other aspirations for the film. I think that that sums it up very well for me. The first time I saw it, it's been a while, and I do think you and I watched it together maybe like, I don't know, a year or two ago. It seems like this was the first time that I saw it. And at the time, I was just so shocked by it all. I don't think I really 
could even deep dive on it. <laughs> I just was like, okay, I'm just yeah. going to take all this in. But going back and seeing it again, it really gave me the luxury of being able to step back from it. I do feel like Anna was given a voice. There's a couple of scenes where her lover, Heinrich, drops off a tape of her to Mark to try to show Mark this is who Anna is. I think he was trying to give Mark a glimpse into it because so many times, I'm sorry, men do not, they don't want to deep dive on their partners. They don't have that capability or they don't give a shit or whatever. And I think that as Mark was watching these films of Anna, I think that that really brought home a lot for me about her. And I believe that it did give her some type of voice in the film to show she was a complicated woman. She was trying to get her message out there. She was trying, I think, to say where there was a, a phrase she kept repeating over and over. You said I instead of me, or you used I for me, meaning you're trying to control me. You don't see me as a person. You just see me as someone who you want me to be or someone that you've created in your mind. I mean, basically, Mark created the doppelganger that he wanted just a calm wife to stay home, not demand sex from him, take care of the child, just to be there and not have any other needs or aspirations or wants. And I feel like that that was his I instead of me for her, if that makes sense. So I feel that it did make some valid points. Maybe not the way that I would have as a woman. I think I could have articulated it better. But once again, the more detail you give, maybe it would have seemed more dated. Maybe 40 years from now, it wouldn't have the same impact that it did. So I really felt it was not as misogynistic watching it the second time as maybe I did seeing it the first time. Yeah, it to me felt like Zawolski was trying to understand. And I'm, again, this is like, I'm just thinking about this in terms of what's going on in his life at the time. His wife, I believe, cheated on him. And they were going through divorce when he finally, or when he was working on this screenplay initially. So keeping that in mind, I almost feel like this is a way of him trying to figure out what happened. What was going on with my wife? What was she experiencing? I feel like this is his deep dive on her potentially, or maybe his deep dive on women, or maybe his deep dive on the situation and the complication of marriage. It seems like this is him wanting to understand. And I think that that is... I don't want to say commendable because I don't want to commend men for the bare fucking minimum, but I think that it's better than making assumptions. It's better than just making things how you want them to be when you're actually trying to figure out what is it? What is it that she wants or what is it that she thinks or what is it that she means? Even if he doesn't know, the process of trying to figure that out is in there and that is fascinating. Oh, and that's such a good point, Lindsay, because I do remember Mark in the movie, Sam Neill, Mark, saying to her, I'm all in. 
I'm I'm with you. I want to do this. This was right after he found the body parts in the refrigerator and realized there was a monster or that she was in bed with or whatever was going on at that point. And he kept saying, I'm all in. I, I, I want to understand. I mean, he was putting himself into this manic state to, just to try to connect with her and understand. So that would make perfect sense that Zuvosky could not get a grasp. He was so desperately trying to understand what went wrong, and it just always seemed to be beyond his reach to just finally get it. Yeah, and so much of this movie is about miscommunication to me you have these characters who can't articulate to each other what it is they want and definitely anna is worse at it than mark mark is able to tell her more clearly i think what he wants or needs because what he wants and needs is not that complicated but anna she can't there are a lot of moments where she struggles to even get the words out she just doesn't have them and so she makes like guttural noises or little grunts or more animalistic sounds but she's still expressing herself she's just not doing it so clearly and I think Mark just really wants her to tell him what the fuck is going on there are so many times where he's trying to extract information from her and she's either deflecting or she's refusing to answer or she's sometimes even sort of provoking argument just to not be involved in that conversation. And I think when he finally sees those body parts in her fridge, it's like he kind of sees her. He finally sees her. And I think too, doesn't she, at some point she tells him, or maybe he asks her like, can you not tell me because you're afraid of how I might view you or how I might think about you? It's so something in that vein. Mm -hmm. And she says yes. And so I think it is like like being afraid to express maybe your deep, dark desire to your partner or being unable to do it and them feeling in the dark and then him finally realizing like, oh, fuck, this is what's going on with her. OK, I it's weird, but, you know, I can I can fuck with this. Yeah. That It almost seems like that. Yeah, I can I can help her cover up murder and feed a monster and I'm all in but I'm an international spy damn it yeah yeah done that that is so true I, I was just when you were talking about that something you said really hit me which was she didn't seem to know what she wanted and I'm just thinking to myself I don't even know right now in my life if I really know what I want you know what I mean I mean I'm yeah. like so many times you feel things so deeply. You know you want more in life. You know that you may be violently unhappy with something. You may have yearnings that you can't even really know yourself. So maybe she just really didn't know what the fuck she wanted. And it was just so traumatizing to her. Now, what I would have to say is, what it appears to be from the film at the end, because all of a sudden when the monster finally, the monster's growing and morphing and turning into Mark, and it basically turns into her idealized version of Mark, 
It could be where deep down that she loves him and wanted him, but wanted him as a completely different person that she knew he could never be. One that desired her sexually, one that, I don't know, let her speak for herself, put her first, did not leave her for months or years at a time as an international spy. Like, what is an international spy doing with a family anyway, for shit's sake? (laughs) You know? Come on, Mark. I know. But I don't know. And once again, it's these things that you just ponder. But it does make me think, like, right now, if somebody came to me and just said, Joe, what do you really want? What do you want in life? What do you want your life to be right now? Tomorrow, if you could get up and snap your fingers and have everything exactly the way you want it, what would it be? How many of us would just be able right then to just articulate it completely? There, I'm sure there's some people that could, but I know I would not be one of those people. No, same. It's a really hard question to answer. And I think especially as a woman, it's a hard question to answer because we're conditioned to think that the things we want in life are the very traditional things like grow up, get married, have a kid, have a job or some shit. What else is there? That's it. You're living the dream. And it is really a weird experience. I'm not, I mean, I am married, but I don't have any kids, nor do I want any. But it is a weird experience when someone tells you that these are the things you're supposed to want, and then you get them and you don't feel any way. There's there's that one scene where Anna screams, I feel nothing for no one. And it's like, fuck, yeah. I mean, that's like the most horrifying feeling in life, I think, when when the things that are supposed to make you feel something just leave you feeling empty. It's like where there's no other roadmap. Where do you go from there? What do you do? What is going to give you a feeling of satisfaction or happiness? If it's not these things that have been prescribed to you, what is it? And that's that's horror. <laughs> that's true horror. Real horror. Absolutely. That is horrific. Women are put in a little box, don't make waves, don't be unattractive. We're so judged. And in turn, it makes us judgmental of people. And it, it really takes a lot of work to realize we can be what we want to be. And that sounds cliche, but to really know that you can do it, to really know that you only need to be attractive or only need to be happy in your own skin. I mean, we all have these physical constraints of we put on clothes because if we went out nude, that would not be acceptable. I mean, there are certain things that we all have to adhere to, but women are so just kept quiet. And that is the thing that's the hardest for me, like Anna, is just finding your voice with all of this baggage that you're given to keep you down, to keep you as a second-class citizen. So many things that men are forgiven for that women would never be forgiven for. And that's why when Anna has this incredible scene in the subway where she just, to say loses her shit, just does not do it justice. I think it's more just letting out something that may have been affecting her for her whole life, just letting it rip, letting it go, finally understanding what she's going to do and what her purpose in life is almost. It was like a almost a rebirth for her. And I can see where that 
comes from of just a lifelong of not fitting in, not having a voice, not being happy with anything, and finally just exploding from it. Yeah, and when she has that scene in the subway and the very next scene, it cuts to her and Mark talking. And they had been talking before that subway scene as well. So now they're talking again, and she tells Mark that she miscarried Sister Faith. Because in that film within a film home video that Heinrich gave, she goes on this tangent and gives this speech about the two sisters, Faith and Chance, and how they're kind of in contention with each other and pushing and pulling. And so she talks about how she miscarried Sister Faith. And there was a snippet of an interview with Zawowski in the book that we read where he was talking about what that represented, like what was the thing that she miscarried in the subway station. And he basically says, you know, it's open to different interpretations, but it does almost seem like, so if she's getting rid of her faith, faith in what? Is it faith in the relationship? Is it faith in this prescribed happiness or satisfaction that she's supposed to get from her familial structure? It could be a whole bunch of things, but I definitely do think one compelling read on it is, is that, is faith that the family structure that Mark and Bob can somehow mm. complete her or make her feel something. It does almost seem a, a giving away of any type of conventionality because, of course, after this, then we get into the monster becoming more like a human and that infiltrating and um, carrying the rest of the story. So then it does become very much on the, I don't want to say like on the horror side or on the unrealistic side, like not like reality. How did, how did you interpret those comments about miscarrying faith and what that faith would be in? I think a lot of what you said I agree with. It almost seemed like once again, okay, alert, alert, I'm going to go back into religion right now. <laughs> It almost seemed because there was a scene where she was almost having like these, this orgasmic interlude while she was looking up at a statue of Jesus being crucified. If you remember that scene where she was sitting on something and she was like, uh, uh, and she was looking up at crucified Jesus. Yes. And it almost seemed to me that in the scene where she miscarries Sister Faith, I, what you said, I do believe that she got rid of normal convention. She, any faith that she was trying to look for through Jesus or through any faith that she may have been brought up in, she miscarried that. It was gone. Any faith in her family, any faith in convention of I shouldn't murder, thou shall not kill, thou shall not commit adultery, thou shall not whatever. I think she was able to give up all of that moral conventions that it had been put upon her and finally let it go, which enabled her to bring this monster, this doppelganger, what she really wanted in life, what she really wanted, not what society told her that she had to want or how she should act, but what she really wanted she was then able to do anything that she had to do, killing, murdering, protecting, leaving her family, leaving Bob for the most part to bring this thing to life that 
she thought was going to bring her fulfillment and happiness. That's how I kind of read it, which I think is kind of what you said, right? Yeah. And I, I believe after she has this conversation with Mark about miscarrying sister Faith, mm-hmm. doesn't he tell her she looks, I don't remember what he says. I think it's like, you look vulgar, or you look disgusting mm-hmm. to me, or he immediately comments about how he finds her repulsive. And that would go in line with that interpretation of if she's if she's giving up that unconventionality, which Mark desperately wants. Like Mark in this whole equation is like the one who wants order. He just wants things to be as they were, where, as you said, Anna takes care of Bob and takes care of him and doesn't ask too much of him and everything is just going along fine. That's what he wants. So for her to then admit, well, I I expelled that shit. Like, I'm not doing that anymore. Of course, he would find that repulsive. Absolutely. Yeah. But then, you know, then he has that other revelation when he sees all of her bodies. And that really is interesting that that is then what brings him back to her. Yeah, that is interesting. I've, I've been trying to wrap my mind around that because he has his own little meltdown and he goes out on the terrace. And when I first saw the first time I saw the film, I'm like, is he going to jump? Like, I thought he was going to jump off that terrace when he found the body parts. And I think at that point, he was forced into a revelation of, okay, this is more than my wife having an affair. This is more than her wanting to leave me. That's not even important anymore. That You just put that in the rearview mirror when you find body parts in your in your significant other's refrigerator like everything else just kind of pales like okay that's not such a big deal anymore and I think at that point he had to say I'm either going to the police and turning her in this is what I would say in my mind like I I'm out of here I'm severing the ties with this crazy person I'm out or you want to protect them. You want to try to cover up from them. You want to, even though it's wrong, you know, she's committing murder. Like you said, he, he finally sees for the first time an individual woman fighting for everything that she has in order to find happiness. And suddenly he's gone for maybe wanting to control her to just wanting to be a part of her. I don't know. But but a a flip switches for him where he, I think, decides he's all in with it. He's willing to cover up for her. He sees the monster fucking her. He's cool with it. You know, like it's going to happen. I think it's also like his ego is removed from the equation because it's no longer a little pissing contest between him and Heinrich. Heinrich has been wronged as well, just meaning he doesn't know what the fuck is going on with Anna. Anna is not with him. She's with the monster. And I think that for some reason, Mark is able to justify the whole thing when it's not another man involved. It's like that removes his desire to be competitive in that way. And also he gets to kill Heinrich by smashing his head with a toilet cover so that's got to be pretty satisfying as well but yeah it's like once once that is gone then he can finally let go and then he can finally 
look at the situation and I guess try to be helpful or try to be included or try to be a real partner, however you want to look at that. I think that's true. I think we have to talk about the sexuality between Mark and Anna and even the sexuality between Mark and Heinrich because there are scenes between them that are very intimate, a lot of touching and especially on Heinrich's part, where he gets very familiar with Mark. I mean, what what was your take on this? Was Mark just sexually ambivalent about his marriage? Was he questioning his own sexuality? Sex seemed to be a big part of this, a lot of sexual connotation. So what did you take from that part of it? Oh, it's so interesting. I We did watch this really good YouTube video about... It was sort of a reading of the film through a queer lens. We'll link that, so check that out. But it got me thinking about how there is for sure, I think, a read on this film where Mark is potentially queer. Maybe he's gay, maybe he's bi, maybe his relationship with Anna just isn't doing it for him, but he is not willing to admit to himself that that is what is going on. It seems that in comparison to her, she comes off as a very sexual character where she admits that sex is important to her, that she likes sex with Heinrich, that she likes sex with other men. We see her having sex with the monster. She is coming into her own sexually and owning that and giving herself what she needs. And we don't see Mark do that. There are... Those scenes, like you mentioned with Margie, where it comes off as kind of sexual, and there are definitely some homoerotic scenes with Heinrich where there's violence, but there's also definitely an eroticism where it just seems like they're going to kiss at any second or like they could start fucking. It just, it could go anywhere. Yep. So I think that Mark comes off as more repressed. Anna comes off as more sexually liberated. And that they're at odds with each other from that perspective. Whether or not that means that he is dealing with sexual identity issues or something or not, I don't know. But I do think that they're, they are at odds sexually. They're like different ends of the spectrum. I agree with that, definitely. I took it as her sexual frustration was a big part of her unhappiness. I think she wanted Mark to desire her, want her, and I think Mark did not. Maybe he did at one point. I mean, they had a kid. I don't know. But it seemed to me as if he would have just been happy to just go to bed every night, not have to touch her, just to play the part of a father role. Uh, Well, I say that. I mean, he was never there. The father role when he felt like being a father, it seemed like. And I I do feel like a lot of that sexual frustration was a part of what was going on with her, that it was was something powerful within her. And a lot of times sexual frustration, too, can, can be that she just wanted a connection with him that she could not get. She could not be close with him. He had a completely separate, secretive life from her. 
I'm sure that was very frustrating for her as well. He's off doing no, who knows what type of adventures, maybe really enjoying his espionage. And she's just sitting at home <laughs> looking at the Berlin Wall every day, you know, with this little kid. And she's just not fulfilled you know, on many levels. So I do believe that that was part of it. I do believe that as the film went on especially after he saw the body parts and if I, th I think i'm correct there the film opens up and they're in bed together and it appears they have no clothes on but they do not do anything sexual there doesn't seem to be anything sexual between them until right at the end of the film after he sees all the body parts right and he's really desperately wanting to make this connection with her that they finally end up having sex with each other i feel like that he feels like he needs to do that to show her, yes, I'm willing to jump off this cliff with you. I see the body parts and I'm going to fuck you. Yeah. Okay. Now, you know, I'm in girl, you know, here <laughs> I come. So I feel like that that was part of it. So, yeah, I mean, once again, a lot of it up to an interpretation I thought it very interesting that at the, the very end of the film, Anna brings her doppelganger to show Mark like he's finished. Isn't he gorgeous? Isn't he beautiful? And she's proud of it. And she maybe she believes that Mark is going to be all in with her on this. And it doesn't work out like that for either one of them. So, yeah, that's all I got to say. <laughs> Yeah. Just sitting here thinking about it going around and around in my mind. But, and that, that makes me want to ask you, I mean, what do you, at the very end, Mark and Anna do, I guess, come together, back together again, but it takes death to bring them back together. I mean, what did you think about that? Is that the only way that these two people could reconcile is to lose their earthly lives? Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because now... Mark's double is out there, and now Anna's double is out there, and presumably, I guess, there's really no need for Mark and Anna themselves to be there because these better versions of themselves exist and are going to be more compatible with each other or are going to be able to do things that they couldn't do. So maybe it does take death for those new versions of themselves to live on. But then we know that what ends up happening is like a trigger of the apocalypse. And by the end of the movie, yeah. there are like air raid sirens and noises of catastrophe in the sky and Bob has killed himself. So this, there's no happy ending for this movie, but maybe it's like, oh, for a brief moment, yes, maybe this other version will stick around and will do something better but there is no better there's only bleak reality yeah i believe so because the doppelganger he he had an evil vibe you know going up the steps there were police and mark's old employers were chasing him trying to kill him they were shooting this let me know this was truly a kind of a supernatural moment because bullets did not affect the doppelganger he was not harmed by them. He was able to speak to the woman at the top of the steps, give her a gun and say, shoot at the police. 
So just by suggestion, he was able to take control of this woman's mind and have her basically do a suicide mission for him while she helped him escape to the roof and where he eventually ended up at Mark's old apartment where the Anna's doppelganger was now taking care of Bob. So I did feel like that it ended on more of a supernatural, the world is coming to an end as we know it. And this is kind of where I brought in, it's almost as if he's the Antichrist. He's the second coming of what was foretold that's going to bring an end to the world, that kind, that feeling. But then again, I wonder if I did that because Sam Neill, I think the same year or maybe the year before, a year after, starred in like Omen 3, oh, <laughs> where yeah. he was the Antichrist. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm just associating that movie with that or that's kind of what made me think of it. Like I can't hardly see him without thinking about that movie anyway. So <laughs> it was such a weird, scary movie. But Why did he do that? Was the Omen 3 good? Well, I tell you, the Omen franchise was was big when it came out. It really was. I remember seeing it when it came out and thinking, you know, oh, yeah, here he is. I think that was probably the weakest links of the ones that were done. But I, I saw it, but I don't, like, have any, I don't have any recollection of, like, the second and third of those movies. Yeah. Yeah, the first one I know you've seen, and yeah. Anyway, so maybe maybe we'll do a series on the Omen one day if it's if it's worthy. <laughs> but but no, I think I think Zawowski. Uh, I want to say that it's mentioned in the Devil's Advocate book that Revelations comes into play in multiple films, like some kind of playing out of a part of Revelations. I do think I remember that, so I don't think that's off base. Right. It could be that. Or did the war start again between East and West Germany? It could just be that, too. You know, maybe this whole this whole weird thing went on, somehow triggered it. And now they were going to fight it out to the end. At that time, I was just trying to think back to like 1980, 81, when this was going on. Oh, gosh, what? I guess this was the time Reagan got elected. And there was a lot of talk of the Russians are going to kill us. They're going to bomb us. They're going to take over us. It, it, it had a very Cold War feeling. With st- I do remember that, where the apocalypse could be unleashed at any moment. Uh, that that feeling was in the air during this time. So I don't know if the movie was capitalizing on that feeling. I don't know. Yeah, and I feel like I, I think I was born when the Berlin Wall fell the same year. So like, I don't have any personal... <laughs> recollections i and i remember tidbits from history but i hope that one of those other podcasts we mentioned go into some of the history of berlin because i do think that would be really interesting and i would love to hear somebody knowledgeable talk about that to add more political context to the film because i think there's so much there but just you know i'm not (laughs) i'm not the person you want trying to get into that off the top of my head Right. I was living it, but I was like, I don't know, 17. So I was so into myself and selfish. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it's just you need like an historian or something to to explain it because my memory on anything, even shit I lived through is hazy. Right. Yeah, me too. I I think I was still into disco then. So (laughs) I would not be the one to to broach that subject. But 
I don't know. I mean, what else can we say about this movie? I feel like in our own way, we've covered it pretty thoroughly. (laughs) Yeah, I think so, too. I think there's only so much you can do without doing a close reading of a bunch of Uh, the most impactful scenes, of which there are many. It's hard to even pull out favorite scenes because there are just so many. And there are so many little, like, Easter eggs that Zawowski puts in here. Joe mentioned that head. There's also the man with the pink socks. And there's also just some really weird elements that were like, yeah, are they leftovers from parts of the screenplay that got cut? After shooting had already started, you know, there's a, there are a lot of questions to this. And I think a lot of places you can dive, but hopefully we've at least given you, I hope that if anything, we've given you inspiration to go back and rewatch this movie or even to just read some of these other things, do a little deep dive into it, check out the podcasts, because I think it, it really is a movie that just becomes better and better with the more things you read and learn about it. I agree with all of that 100%. And we would love to hear your feedback. Please, on our podcast, rate us. Let us know what you think about this movie. If you've watched it, your thoughts on it. Do you have some wonderful insights you could share with us? Do you have some other material you could share to... Let us go and research that. We would just love to hear your opinion and any feedback that you have for us, please. And another thing I'm really curious about is whether people enjoy this format of a deep dive into a movie, one singular movie, where we, of course, bring in other movies, like we're mentioning and talking about other things that relate. But I am curious if people find that too much? Like, do you not need an hour and 20 minute podcast on one movie? Do you want movies that relate to each other all discussed together? Or do you like this format? I thought that it would be good to just kind of focus in on one movie because that's how I enjoy listening to podcasts. Like if I'm, if I watch a movie that I really love, then I go and I look for podcast episodes that discuss that movie. So I assume other people do the same thing, but let us know. Let us know if you enjoy the format or if you wish that we talked about more movies and did more comparative analysis. I would I would love to hear feedback on that front. Yes, absolutely. Come on, we're all friends here. Let's just all talk it out. Let us know what you think. Yes. <laughs> and um we should say we're excited we're going to have some guests on the podcast. For, I don't, definitely one in October and another one TBD. So if you're getting sick of just us, there will be other people popping in and talking to us about some really cool movies. So stay tuned for that. Yes, exciting things happening. Plus Halloween's coming. Come on. We have to be excited about that. Yes, at least we have Halloween. If the entire world is kind of crumbling in the background, Halloween is is still what I will look forward to, and we can all make it to the end of October. All right, well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode. We still don't know what it's going to be, so it'll be a mystery for you to look forward to. 